We are continuing in our sermon series, of course, in the journey to Jerusalem. And today I get to preach about some of my favorite stories. Lost, lost, lost. This is about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And uh, the phrase that came to mind this week was out of amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. A hundred years ago, when I was about um, seven years old, my family, we didn't go on vacations very often, but we decided, and I think my uncle and his, his family came with us, we went to Big Bear Mountain in California. How many of you know, here's what it looks like. Pretty rugged. It's uh, the hills, if you're in L.A., uh, on the coast, you look east and you see this ridge of mountains, and that's kind of what it was. It was a hot day. It was probably, I don't know, 85 degrees, and when you're up there in those mountains, you just smell that the pine scent is kind of wafting through the air, and we'd never been in the mountains before. My older brother was uh, eight, I was seven, and my youngest brother was about four. And so we pulled into our little cabin that we'd rented in these mountains, and we didn't really want to unload the car. We weren't very much help anyway at that age. So we decided to go explore, and of course, mom says, don't go very far, you know, lunch, lunch is going to be soon. So we started going down this trail that was just opposite of our cabin in the forest, and uh, we were walking through this trail, and I picked up uh, a branch um, along the way, and you know, branches make good swords and switches and stuff. So as I was going, I was peeling off little bitches, bridge, uh, say little pieces of the uh, branch, throwing them into the ground. And, and we found this tree across the trail. So we climbed over this tree, helped my youngest brother over, and we found a clearing. Uh, it was kind of nice. We played there for a little bit. I was having my sword fight with my, my branch, and uh, pretty soon we got hungry. So we decided, time to go back home. And my brother said, this is the way back home. And I said, this is the way back home. And uh, with my innate sense of direction, of course, at seven years old, I decided that I was going to go this way, and my older brother took my younger brother that way, in the opposite direction. Well, I was fairly adamant that I was right, and he was just as adamant that he was right. And they said, fine, we'll see who who gets back home. (laughs) So I went through the, the, the trail that I thought was right, and sure enough, I found my little switches that I had ripped off of my branch, found the log that we had crawled over, and I ran back to the clearing, and I started yelling, Mel and Richard, you know, I found the right way. Uh, you're, you're going the wrong way. And I heard nothing. And they just, they just kept going and going and going. It's 90 degrees out. They had no water, they had no backpack, they had no snacks, nothing to sustain them. So when they didn't show up, I ran back home and I told my, my parents, I'm an only child, yay! <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about? Said Melvin and Richard, they're gone. Like they, they went off the wrong way, I found the right way, and they found the wrong way, and so show me where they were. And we ran back to the clearing, started yelling, nothing. This is like 45 minutes now that they've been gone in the wrong direction. They're going up the hills, through the valleys, and uh, they called the park rangers after them. We've lost our two kids. Like they're, they're four years old and eight years old in the wilderness. 
And uh, these trails in the mountains, there are also uh, mountain bike trails and uh, motorcycle trails. And of course, anyone riding, we were in California, and the only people on motorcycles that we knew at that back in the 70s, they were hippies. And uh, I mean, you just avoid, anyone on a motorcycle is just bad news, right? And so, occasionally, as my two brothers were tired, they're walking these trails, it was hot, they're sweaty, they were dehydrated, a motorcycle would come down the trail, and of course, what did they do? They hid, because they didn't want to get spotted by any bad guys. And this happened a couple of times until my, my youngest brother decided he couldn't hide and run and walk anymore. He just sat down and started to cry on the side of the trail, and a motorcycle eventually came up, stopped, saw these two little kids, and said, what are you guys doing out here? And said, oh, nothing. (laughs) You guys okay? Yeah, uh, we're good. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And he left. And then he decided, that's not right. He turned back. He came back, picked him up, put him on his bike, and brought him back to the campsite. And I had to share a bedroom ever since. Uh, as a kid. Uh, I was admittedly jealous that they got to ride on a motorcycle because I had always wanted to do that, but sometimes, I guess that was the most uh, traumatic time for me as a kid, that my, my brothers were lost, and I didn't know if they were going to come back. I didn't know if we'd ever find them again, but God and his provisions sent a rescue to find them and brought them home safe. Luke chapter 15 talks about lost things. Tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to Jesus in order to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. This murmur was implying that if Jesus was hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, that he probably was one of them. You don't hang out with the riffraff. You don't hang out with the people that are the 'er ne'er-do-wells of society. Um, Naturally, these sinners and outcasts were, from a religious perspective, uh, to be excluded from interacting with any religious leader. I mean, they were the opposites. They stood on the opposite sides of the, of the, the courtyard, so to speak. They wouldn't have hung out with a rabbi or a miracle worker or a religious leader. All they could expect was judgment and rebuke and condemnation. Not that they cared. They were kind of tired of the condescension and the avoidance and the finger pointing and being used as examples of what not to be like. They were likely disappointments to their families and embarrassments who expected more from them than how they turned out. This part of society called sinners was never interacting with those part of societies that were considered to be righteous or religious. And the only point of contact that they would have had is when they, maybe out of guilt or whatever sense of right, they would take money to the temple and put it in the offering. Somehow, though, they didn't feel intimidated by Jesus. They didn't feel judged by Jesus. Um, The only truly righteous person in all of history was standing before them and speaking to them, and they didn't feel looked down upon or or condescended to or unworthy to be in his presence, because Jesus was so different than anything they had uh, experienced before with the religious community. He wanted to love them into his kingdom, not berate them or guilt them or confront them into his kingdom. So what he preached was intriguing to them. 
In fact, he, he said stuff that they had not heard before. He talked about God with some kind of an intimacy that they didn't realize before that religion was duty to them. It was obligation. It was ritual. Not about relationship. They'd heard these kinds of things only from him. And was more, he was pointing fingers at the very people that were pointing fingers at them. Verse 3, it says, he spoke this parable to them. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, and loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after that which was lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, I found the sheep that was lost. Jesus looks at the religious leaders and says, I say to you, likewise, joy will be in heaven over one sinner who repents more than over 99 just people who need no repentance. So the scholars say that if you have a, a sheep herd, anywhere from between 20 and 200, it was considered a normal or an average herd of sheep. Anything over 300 was considered very large. And a lost sheep was something of value and was worth looking for. So the reason that the shepherd... Uh, made the effort to find the lost sheep was because he hoped to recover it and find it safe and sound and bring it home. Jesus went on. He says, or, what woman having 10 drachmas, if she loses one drachma, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found the drachma that I had lost. Likewise, I say to you, Jesus says, again pointing fingers, there's joy before, before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So a drachma, FYI, is the same thing as a Roman denarius. They were about the same value, a small silver, silver coin, and it was considered a one day's wage. So in today's money, somewhere, say, like 200 bucks. Uh, something worth looking for. It had value. Um, the reason for lighting the room, sweeping the floor, is because the hope was the effort would be rewarded. The sinners that Jesus was hanging out with would have been taught the right way as a child. They would have grown up in homes that would have wanted to honor God and go to the temple regularly and observe all the feasts and celebrations that were outlined for God's people to do. Uh, somewhere along the way, though, they were enticed away from what was right, what was just. And they embrace the opposite for the sake of personal gain or personal pleasure at the expense to the relationship with God. It's like they had to, to, maybe it was just a slight diversion from the right path, but eventually they became so far apart from God that they became labeled and lumped into category of sinners that everyone wanted to avoid. When I realized this week, I guess for the first time, I've been a Christian a long time. But I realized for the first time that the G reason Jesus was hanging out with sinners because he hoped one of them would be found. One of them would repent. One of them would turn around and come home. He was seeking the lost the whole time. Luke chapter 5, verse 29 
Levi, one of his disciples, held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with him. And the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complained bitterly to the disciples. Uh, He says, uh, why do you eat and drink with such scum, says this translation. Jesus says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come not to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. What I like in this passage, too, so far in these two stories is that it says every time one person repents, all of angel, I'm sorry, all of heaven parties, the angels rejoice. Can you imagine what kind of celebration? Every time someone turns their life back over to Christ, celebration happens in heaven. He goes on in verse 11, chapter 15. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Give me the portion of goods that is coming to me. And so the father divided his living between them. It wasn't really um, wise to give an inheritance too soon, too early, to someone who didn't really know how to handle it. Also, it wasn't wise to break up the land you owned, but it says in this story that he divided what he was going to give between the two sons. Usually, the older son would get two-thirds, and the younger son would get one-third. So a third of the property, a third of the possessions was sold off and given to this young fellow as his inheritance. The father could have said, you're too young, you don't know what you're doing, I don't trust you to be wise, your resources... But in this parable and what it's trying to teach us is that there is free will. That we do get the choice to do with our lives what we want. Free to reject God, free to choose God. And it says in verse 13, And not many days afterwards, the younger son gathered everything together and he went into a far country. There he wasted his property living dissolutely. So that word dissolutely, let's take that apart just for a second. It means reckless, riotous living. Another word that really I've never seen before is (laughs) profligately, meaning wildly extravagant or very wasteful, abandoned to vice and corruption, shamelessly immoral. So later on when the older brother says that he's spent his money and ride his living in on prostitutes, that's what this is talking about. He didn't just go away and have a good time. He, he, He basically just threw his money at everything and anything that would give him pleasure and um, fun. He had no concern for the future at all. So when he spent it all, verse 14, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want, or he was in bad shape. I don't know if you know this or not, but young people are not known for thinking ahead very much. Have you... Um, they don't have the experience to really know what might happen or could happen. They don't really often have a plan B. They have a plan A, this is what I want to do. And the mom and dad say, well, what if this happens? Or what if you don't get that job? Or what if, what if, what if, what if? Go, oh, it'll be okay. And you go, hmm, yeah, I hope so. But you need a plan B and sometimes a plan C. And they're like, oh, it, you always worry too much. So it says he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he, sent him, uh, the, he was sent out to the field to feed pigs. And as he was longing to fill his own belly with the husk that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything to eat, he, he, um, this was the lowest of the low. He couldn't have gone any lower and, and, except to be dead. 
he was kind of on the verge of, of, of not making it. And it was at this point, at the lowest point in his, his, his young life, he realized what had happened to him and how he had wasted so much. It says when he came to himself, verse 17, how many hired servants of my dad's abound with bread and I'm perishing with hunger? It's like even my, my dad's servants have more than I have and I'm supposed to be a son. He finally saw the truth. None of what society had to offer was there for him. Once he spent all of his money, none of his friends were true friends. None of them came to his aid. No one helped him out. The school of hard knocks helped him finally grow up. He decided to go home. There wasn't anything out there for him anymore. I don't know how hungry he would have been, how long the distance was between a far land and home, but he probably came home pretty skinny and pretty hungry and pretty dirty. I will arise and go to my father, he says in verse 18. Father, I've sinned against you. I'm just going to tell my dad how, how sorry I am. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. And I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Uh, can you maybe even make me like one of your hired servants? So he went to his father. And while he was still a long ways off, his dad sees him. And he has compassion. He runs and he grabs his son around the neck, and he kisses him. Something I notice in this passage is that this father didn't make his son do penance, didn't punish him, didn't ridicule him, didn't give him that I told you so or I suspected as much. You never make a good choice in your life. He didn't hold a grudge or receive the boy with anger or contempt. You know, like, so what do you want me to do now? Like, uh, there's nothing left for you here. You spent it all. All we have here is your brothers now. He just showed love. Like there wasn't a hint of criticism or condescension or anger or resentment or bitterness. The son says, look, Dad, I, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not even worthy to be, to be called your son that, that is what we take as a confession. He's saying, I am messed up. I'm, I really, I've really done something wrong, and I don't even know what to say. I don't deserve anything. I, I don't deserve your kindness. I don't deserve any affection. I don't deserve any regard. But that confession and that conf- uh, repentance was the, the trigger that restored him back as a full member of the family once again. Verse 22 to 32 describes it this way. The father said to his servants, he didn't even acknowledge what the son said. He, he, he yells out to his servants, bring the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and, and kill it. Let us have a party tonight. My son was dead and he's now alive. He was lost and he's found. And they began to be merry and celebrate. The older son was in the field. Of course he was. He's a good older son. He's doing what he was asked to do. And he came in, and he drew near the house. He heard the music and the dancing. And he calls to one of his servants, and he says, What's going on? What's all this partying going on? Some, someone come home or come visit? And uh, the servant says, uh, Hey, well, your brother has come, and your father's killed the fatted calf because he's received him safe and sound. And brother became angry, would not go in. So his dad had to go out and get him too. 
And he says to his dad, look, I've been here working for you these many years. My whole life has been devoted to you and working hard. I didn't transgress your commandments at any time. I didn't break the rules, and yet you never gave me a, a, a fatted calf so I can have parties with my friends. But when your, your, your son uh, comes home, who's devoured, you're living with prostitutes, you've killed for him the fatted calf. And the dad looks at him and says, son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. So many people have seen themselves in this story over the years, over the centuries of reading this particular parable. They relate so much to at least one person in the story. Something I realized, though, uh, when looking at the older brother is that not everyone will be happy when a lost person returns. Some people just think lost people get what they deserve. You know, you do bad things, bad things happen to you. It's called karma. Your life is a result of your choices, good or bad. I've heard these things. The homeless should just get a job. Battered wife should have left that guy years ago. What's she still sticking around with him for? That teenager battling mental illness should never have started with drugs in the first place. So your kid's gone wild. Well, it's no wonder. It's no wonder the kind of parenting that you did, your permissive nature. Or don't come crying to me with all your sob stories. You should have made better choices in life like I did. I worked hard. I didn't give in to party lifestyle. I didn't let drugs or drinking control me. I didn't sleep around. I invested what I had wisely. I'm here and where I am because of my good choices. What I hear, though, is that there's no compassion and no grace, no empathy, only judgment. People like the older brother, they heap guilt and criticism on top of brokenness and pain. They expose their pride in their own good fortune as if they deserved it somehow. And they somehow feel that their condemnation of others is just saying the truth. Well, the one who is truth sees it differently. He's the one that hung out with the lost, hoping that one of them would come back. Any of them, some, doesn't matter. Where is he going to be? He's, he came to seek and save the lost. Second thing out of this passage that... Uh, we need to look at is that not all Christians really fully realize the vast resources that they have as a child of God. It's like the older brother. They live like a spiritual pauper when they are a child of the king. Some still live like they have to earn God's love or prove their worthiness. They don't. I don't know how you grew up, what kind of expectations were in your home. Some people are still trying to please their parents, still trying to get it right, still trying to get that, well done, I'm proud of you, you're doing a good job. And they transfer that to the relationship with God. They're still trying to earn his love or earn his favor or or hear some kind of well done from God. They, They don't realize that they are a child already. They already are a son or a daughter of the king. And we just need to accept that. We 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 don't have to Uh, neglect the vast resources that God makes available to us through his presence of his spirit in our life. Some of these people have, you know, lost their joy. It's hard work being a Christian. You got to sacrifice. 
They still need to worry about things. They live life sometimes with austerity or being cheap or always sacrificing. Maybe it gives them brownie points with God. It's like if they can be miserable, then that's probably you know, good with God because you don't want to be too happy, too much celebration. They don't understand that having an abundant life as Christ means, uh, with Christ means joy and contentment and peace and trusting God safely in his hands, living a full and meaningful life means you can have joy. You you can celebrate even parties in heaven. We should be on earth. Let's celebrate all the goodness of God as part of our mission statement, just celebrating God's goodness because of his great love for us. So the parable, uh, this is not an allegory per se where everything represents something in particular, but a parable does have a deeper meaning. And in this situation, Jesus is trying to help the, the, the judgmental, condescending Pharisees realize what their Father in heaven actually is like. They were still trying to earn their favor with God, still to do all the right things, checking all the boxes off. And he's saying, guys, relax. Don't worry about yourself. Worry about those who aren't going to make it. The Father in this story represents God, always watching, always waiting, always working to bring people home safe. Doesn't want people to have to go through unnecessary pain and suffering. He rejoices. He actually rejoices when people come home. He sees their heart. He knows their pain. He feels their embarrassment and self-condemnation for always missing the mark, for being stuck in the cycle of failure and misadventure. And he knows that they need help to get back up on their feet. Help to see that there's hope. Help believing someone actually loves them. Have you been following the news about all of the deaths with overdoses and even up to this point? We, you know, with all the measures that have been put in place, we have more deaths, these first from January till now, than we had last year. It's like six people a day are dying with overdoses. And... That should disturb us. They're looking for hope somewhere else where they can't find it. They're looking for meaning and and fulfillment in places that will just ruin them. The older son uh, represents judgmental people, the religious leaders of the day. Uh, Such people are often racist, misogynist, judgmental, xenophobic, legalistic, graceless, and I could even say often heartless people. They see things only in terms of black and white, no gray, no mitigating circumstances, no debilitating triggers or past traumas that people may have endured. They only see bad choices, little to no compassion. They can go through life not really caring about anyone else but themselves and those that are close to them. The younger son really represents all who are lost, needing to understand that what the world offers is fleeting, never truly satisfies, friends are fickle, canceled culture is real, everyone is out for themselves. They don't know what is true anymore or who you can depend on or what will bring real happiness or purpose or meaning in life. You look at the life of Jesus, who was our example, and he was modeling for his disciples at this time what what he expects from his disciples. He wasn't hanging out with the religious leaders. He was hanging out with those who needed him. 
who didn't even know that they needed him. Jesus treated women with dignity and respect who were largely overlooked by those in power. He hung out with sinners and prostitutes and traitors and crippled and diseased and the poor and the broken people. He even unashamedly compares himself to a homeless person. I don't even have a place to lay my head, he says. The righteous leaders criticized Jesus for hanging out with those sinners, but if not Jesus, then who? Who's going to go bring hope? Who will bring the good news of salvation, of freedom, of forgiveness to people who don't think that they're worthy to be called a son anymore? Who will have a heart of compassion or a sense of urgency for their souls? The truth is that these people, these homeless, these sinners, these people that run as fast as they can away from God are our brothers and our sisters. They are our uncles and aunts and our grandkids. They are our children gone astray. If it's not our responsibility, then whose is it? Some of you were more like them at one point, needing a hand up, a sense of that there is hope, that there is a future. Some of you had come to the end saying, I don't think life's worth living. I don't think I can go on. God reached out, and in his mercy, he found you. And he gave you hope, gave you a new life, a new reason, a new relationship. It's interesting in my research, it reminded me that no other religion in the world has a deity that seeks after the lost. All the other religions have a deity where you have to beg the deity for for help, bring your offerings to them, seek them out, find them, bring a sacrifice to get any kind of a blessing or some kind of a, a consideration. But in Christianity, our God seeks the lost. He hunts them down and chases them down and tries to help them to see that he's there, he cares, he's got love for them, and redemption and hope and forgiveness if they would be willing to just stand up and take his hand. We are not asked to judge others who are hurting or lost. We are the fellow pilgrims on on a journey. We're asked to love others, to forgive others, to pray for others, to do good to others, to care for others and rejoice with others and to cry with others. Jesus was not hanging out with broken people. He was seeking them. And when he found them, he hoped that at least one would turn around and come home. So who do you know that's lost in this world, that's turned their back on God, who needs to see the truth of God's love for them? Who do you know that is chasing after what secular society has to offer, only to find out it's empty in the end? Will you pray for them? Will you commit even this week to praying for them? I, I, I bet you will be shocked at what happens. When we send the forces of God's uh, heaven after people that are lost, uh, he begins to work in their heart and reveal truth to them and work them back towards home. Two applications for this message. One is if you relate to the younger son still who needs to come home, Just because you're here today doesn't mean you're safe. There's a lot of people that come to church that are really struggling, that 
We don't know what tomorrow looks like or next week looks like. You're on the edge. You're wondering, does God care? Does God see? Does God love me? And I say, yes, yes, and yes. He does. He knows. And we're here as a church to help, help you, to encourage you, to walk with you. Sometimes we can do amazing things. We've got amazing people in this congregation that can step up and, and, and quietly just step in and help if that's what you need. Don't be lost on your own. There's grace for you. There's welcome Father who stands here with open arms to welcome you home. I always like to remember that this is Jesus' church. He's the head. If you could picture Jesus standing right here in front of me right now, do you need to come to him and just have a chat with him? Because he's waiting. The second thing is, if any of you relate more to the older son, you don't know how to enjoy life. Maybe you've lost your joy. Maybe you just know how to work hard and feel if everything depends on you because you're holding it all together. There's grace for you too. And you can repent of your attitude, your judgmental or critical spirit, your lack of love for others. And let Jesus turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh that will love others as he does. If you walk by someone who's lost, and hurting, and have no compassion whatsoever, I'd say maybe you need to have a talk with Jesus to help you to see them as he does. The Father loves you too, and there's a place at the banquet table reserved for you. And I just say, let God restore to you the joy and peace that he has to offer so that we can treat others as he wants us to. It's a challenging group of stories but it reveals to us what our God is like. He never stops drawing people to himself. He lifted up his son on the cross. And if we lift up Christ too, he says, I will draw people to myself. It's not only come and see, but go out and tell. Go out and find those that are lost. It's worth the effort. Let's pray. Father God, these stories are challenging, and uh, I pray, Father, that we would have the same kind of intensity of seeking that which was lost, as these people in this, these parables did. Father, we know that you are making great effort. You, you, you sought each one of us out. You sought each one of us with your spirit, drawing us to yourself, helping us to see the truth and the grace that's offered to us. Father God, may you put someone in front of our pathway this week that we can, we can sit beside, we can stand beside, we could have lunch with, we could intervene and just ask how they're doing. Maybe is there something we can pray with them about? Let us be your hands and feet and your voice of hope this week, Father, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.